Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lair's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Friday, January 5th. I'm Bridget Bergen, filling in for Brian today. We all know this will be a very consequential election year in the United States, but as it turns out, more than 60 countries will hold national elections this year, according to the Washington Post, affecting some 4 billion people. We're talking about major countries in their regions like India, South Africa, the UK, Taiwan, and of course the United States, and yet democracy itself is considered at stake in many of these votes. The Post's global affairs columnist, Ishan Tharoor, who writes their newsletter called Today's Worldview, wrote that this year could be the greatest rolling spectacle of democracy in human history. Ishan, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks. Uh, Good to be with you, Bridget. Is it unusual for so many countries to hold elections in the same year? It's unusual in the sense that the sheer scale of it, as well as the fact that the countries we're talking about are some of the world's biggest and most populous nations. I think eight of the 10 most populous countries in the world are having national elections this year. And I think uh, based on some studies, we won't see a year like this, at least per current trends, until say 2048. So this is a big year in elections. There of course is a, a profound irony that even as you know more adults are voting than ever before or have the capacity to vote ever before, we feel this kind of pervasive sense that democracy is uh, more vulnerable than it's been in a long time. You describe a bit of a paradox and you started to touch on it just a moment ago in which you know you described this rolling spectacle of democracy, but one in which democracy itself is also at stake. But the fact that so many countries are actually holding elections, does that indicate democracy might, in fact, be thriving around the world? I don't think so. I think, you know, it's a host of political scientists will tell you that uh, elections are great and it's, it's important and essential for democracies for there to be elections. But the quality of your democracy is not shaped entirely just by the ability to vote. And what we're seeing uh, across the world and you have you know, various uh, think tanks and, and uh, political organizations that study this point out that you know, we are in, you know, Freedom House says we are in the 17th year of a democratic recession in terms of the quality of democracy around the world. Another major think tank in Sweden has said that democracies on the whole have declined in their, in their quality for six consecutive years. And what are they talking about? They're talking not just about um, the free and fairness, the, the freedom and fairness behind elections, but they're talking about the participatory nature of the democracy, the, the, the ways in which the rule of law functions in those societies, uh, the ability uh, for civil society to have a stake in the political process, the freedom of the press, and so on and so forth. There's a whole list of these uh, indicators that, we, that, 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 that comprise what our sense of a, a free and functioning and healthy liberal democracy should look like. And we are what in what you know the political scientist Larry Diamond has described as a, a real recession in democracy, one that perhaps has started or can be traced back to say the the global financial crisis at the end of the previous decade, and we're seeing its long tail now in various forms. Uh, yes, as you said, of course, 
lots of people are voting. This will be the biggest year in terms of ballots cast. If you look at India alone, the world's most populous country, there is very high voter participation there, and their election will be uh, a couple of months long process. Uh, wow. The Indonesian election in February will be the single greatest day in voting um, for uh, around the world. Uh, and so so on and so forth in terms of uh, the spectacle of this. But what's happening in these societies? Uh, you're seeing illiberal leaders, illiberal governments um, really take hold in a certain way and fundamentally change the tenor of a lot of democracies around the world. And that has analysts uh, in various parts of the world very concerned. Can you talk a little bit more about what are some of the main characteristics of these illiberal democracies uh, and how does that fit into this period of recent history that you call the third wave of democracy? Sure. The third wave of democracy, which was uh, characterized by the political scientist Samuel Huntington, was what we saw at the end of the previous century um, when various countries that were under dictatorships or other forms of authoritarianism uh, won their freedoms, built democracies through the 80s and 90s, and then through the end of the Cold War. And that wave, you know, surged through the end of the Cold War into this century. But we are seeing now a steady retreat. I think um, it's useful at this point just to kind of, if we're talking about the elections happening this year, think about it in terms of four buckets. One bucket, say, is the Western countries, the United States, uh, you know, the liberal democracies in Europe. That's one bucket where we tend to take for granted the health and robustness of those democratic societies. Then another bucket, of course, would be completely authoritarian states, say say Russia or Iran, where there will be elections as well this year, where we don't have any pretensions about the democratic nature of those elections being held this year. Mm. Another bucket would be kind of electoral autocracies, where there is an election, where there is a nominal opposition allowed to participate in the election, but the outcome is completely set in stone. It's not fair. And I think you could say you could put a country like Tunisia in that. You could put a country like Bangladesh at this point in that. Uh, and, 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 and I think that's a, a, a concerning block of countries are, 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 are in that category. But the biggest and most important category is this last one, which is countries that have robust free elections, have opposition parties, but are currently drifting in a way under illiberal, perhaps nationalist, majoritarian governments that are steadily moving these countries out of uh, you know, what we would classify as truly free liberal democracies and toward that camp of electoral autocracies. So we can think about what's happened in Hungary under Prime Minister Viktor Orban or Turkey under President Erdogan and apply that to what is starting to happen in India under Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Hmm. Um, and uh, a growing uh, group of other countries uh, also fit that bill. And that 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 bucket is the biggest bucket. And we're going to see that perhaps in Mexico, where there are elections this year, uh, Indonesia, where there's election next month. And, and that is, you know, that's these these kinds of an illiberal democracies that are drifting towards electoral autocracies. Uh, that's becoming the zeitgeist uh, of, of our age. I want to go to Rudolph in Stony Brook, Long Island, who I think uh, if we continue talking about in terms of the buckets, I think has a, a geographic or regional bucket that he feels like is potentially being ignored in terms of elections across the country. Rudolph, thanks for calling WNYC. 
Thank you so much for taking my call. I wanted to talk about Nigeria. We had an election February mm-hmm. of last year, and it was a very disputed election. Uh, it was fraudulent. Uh, we had a candidate who had a lot of allegations against him here in America, um, basically took control of the country, um, controlled the, the military, the, the judiciary, and um, forced himself on the nation. He had less than 37% of the votes, um, and it was, there were so many crises during the election, and the international community didn't, didn't raise any voice. Even the FBI initially said they would release the uh, information on him, on the allegations against him in America, the cases he had, but at the end, they did not do it in time, and the court system, everything was so horrible. And uh, that's the pattern in Africa. And as long as the international community close their eyes uh, about these things, it's going to continue, and it's going to get worse. People are basically lost hope in the democratic process. In Nigeria, that is um, the major, most populous country in, in Africa, you know, and that pattern continues. Rudolph, thank you so much for that call. Um, Ishan, I'd love to give you an opportunity to respond to Rudolph um, because I think one of the incredible issues that he highlights here is the fact that if the, if we're not paying attention to these elections around the world, it enables people to, um, it, it, it weakens them in some respects. Yes, and I think, you know, without having to uh, necessarily put my own verdict on what happened in Nigeria, which of course, as Rudolph said, was a highly contested, controversial election. Um, He's absolutely right that Western governments in particular um, have not really extended as critical an eye to the democratic functioning uh, of governments in Africa as perhaps they should. You think about, say, one of the most beloved uh, governments uh, in Africa as far as, you know, Washington and say, uh, the UK are concerned is, is Rwanda, and that's essentially a, a one-party one dictatorship. Um, and 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 he's absolutely right also that you know parallel to uh, these trends of electoral autocracy deepening or illiberal democracies, uh, you know, becoming the the mainstream in our global conversation, uh, is uh, a real sense among young people in various parts of the world. That democracy has not delivered as it should, that it's not worth uh, valorizing the way it has been, that, hmm. you know, democracies don't necessarily deal with corruption. They don't necessarily deliver the services they need. They don't necessarily um, give them the lives that they hope for. And so there is a kind of pessimism and cynicism about democratic politics that a whole slate of opinion polls is also revealing in various parts of the world. Anishan, I want to talk about some other big elections in other parts mm-hmm. of the world. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Europe, where you mention uh, Britain, Germany, Austria, and Portugal all have big elections. Um, you start the Europe section by writing that a similar sense of crisis is with Trumpism in the United States is roiling European politics. Europe has its own Donald Trumps. Well, indeed, you know, we've seen, I think this has been uh, for the last half a decade, the kind of perennial story about uh, European democracy is this the steady march of the far right, uh, once completely fringe, uh, ultra-nationalist, even sort of blatant neo-Nazi or neo-fascist political movements, um, steadily working their way into the political mainstream, 
of European politics, where they had been kept out for so many decades. And uh, you saw that recently in last year's Dutch election, where the first place party is a profoundly far-right, anti-immigrant, essentially racist political faction uh, that that came in first. And and you're seeing, uh, you, you will probably see the far-right uh, win power or enter as a junior partner in the next Portuguese election, certainly in the next Austrian election that's also happening this year. But the biggest thing to watch um, is, of course, the, the European Union, it has its own kind of continental parliament, and those parliamentary elections across the across Europe will be held um, later this year. And in those elections, we may see a really, you know, what, what years ago, you know, just half a decade ago, or even a decade ago, would have been unthinkable. We may see the far right emerge as one of the biggest blocks in the European Parliament. And that would be wow. a real shock to the system, especially a shock to the EU, uh, which, of course, is, a, you know, it's a complicated uh, block, but it it really functions on a very liberal understanding of what the European project ought to be. And if the far right, you know, assembles a real critical mass in the European Parliament, that's going to completely uh, perhaps reset what the European Union as a whole and as an institution may represent. Just on the other side of this, you talk about in Britain where the Conservative Party, which is in power, is actually floundering and may be facing an imminent electoral defeat to the Labour Party. And uh-huh. that's obviously the opposite of the trend that we've been talking about in right. uh, it, it, the rest of, of Europe. Of the, Why it, is that an is, exception? It's it's one of the very curious ironies of our moment. Of course, uh, the UK uh, really kicked things off, <laughs> kicked off a kind of political age uh, in 2016 with the, the referendum for Brexit, uh, the Conservative Party, after that referendum surprisingly succeeded, uh, has kind of twisted itself in knots to deliver this exit from the EU. Um, it now seems to be kind of after over a decade in power, it now uh, is really kind of uh, in its last gasps. And uh, there's a, it seems quite clear that the next election in the UK would probably deliver a Labour government. Uh, led by this relatively moderate leader, Keir Starmer. And you would see in the UK uh, the restoration of a kind of conventional, traditional social democratic party in the European sense, uh, while on the other side of the the channel in Europe, you're seeing a much more uh, radical and nationalist takeover in various places. The contrast is so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's go to Seydu in Manhattan, Seydu, thanks for calling WNYC. Hello, how are you, Bridget, and your guest? I can't wait, by the way, to read your article. I wanted to talk about the elections, the upcoming elections in Senegal in, mm-hmm. I believe, late February. Um, the current government, the current regime, is actually doing everything possible on earth to eliminate the main opposition leader who's actually in jail right now because they know he wants to implement some changes to, that would help the youth specifically to have some hope, to restore hope that would allow them to stay in Senegal instead of going and die in the Mediterranean Sea or trying to come to the U.S. via the Mexican border. That's why the, the current regime, because they don't really care about um, the, the well-being of the population. They only care about their own privileges. Because they know, should he win, he would change the country. 
because Senegal now is, is they have oil and a lot of natural gas. I believe if they have a government that actually cares about the population, if they manage their natural resources well, in the next 10, 15 years, um, I believe Senegal would be in a different uh, economic landscape. That's why the current regime is doing everything possible to really just to prevent the main opposition leader who is widely supported by the youth to even run. Despite mm. winning um, um, two, uh, I would say, victories in the courts, because the courts have ruled in his favor twice, but the government is still refusing to actually validate his candidacy. Seydou, thank you so much for, for your call and for listening and for, for sharing your perspective on the elections in Senegal. Any, any reaction? Absolutely. And, and I regret not having much in my article on the Senegalese election. Senegal is really, a, it's viewed in the West and in Western capitals and Paris and Washington as the, the kind of bulwark of stability in West Africa. Uh, and, and you've seen in the region, uh, in, among Senegal's neighborhood, a wave of coups um, against, uh, in some cases, elected governments, and in other cases, another other coup governments. And uh, you know, Senegal throughout this has been the kind of sensible, stable partner. But it has its own profound problems, and and there are deep concerns that um, the the kind of the uh, the contagion of, of 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 the kind of coup politics taking over the region. Uh, could infiltrate there. I think uh, Senegalese democracy is is something that, uh, or at least Senegalese stability is something that Western governments have taken uh, for granted for a long time. Mm. But um, this election is worth watching for precisely the reasons the caller outlined. I want to try and touch on a few more countries that have elections going on in our last few minutes. Um, one of the issues, um, certainly that I know that you wrote about that um, it has been an issue in our elections and in other parts of the world are the issue of migrants. Um, and one of the countries right now that has a lot of people leaving it, um, certainly for the United States, is Venezuela, which is also holding its elections this year with uh, the authoritarian leader, Nicolas Maduro, seeking to remain in power. Are elections under Maduro even even real? Uh, well, it- we should certainly be cynical about what they will yield and how they will be conducted. Uh, the Biden administration did offer the Maduro government a degree of sanctions relief uh, in exchange for this agreement surrounding these elections coming up. The opposition in Venezuela uh, had its own primary where they they tapped uh, a leading uh, opposition figure who could potentially challenge Maduro. But... Um, there are complications uh, now, and it's really far too early to to suggest that uh, we may see a free and fair election in Venezuela. But uh, you know, previous elections, you know, the opposition has run Maduro close, so we'll see. I, I think uh, uh, there's reasons to be a bit more optimistic than before. But but given the the pretty tragic and harrowing course of the last more than decade in Venezuelan politics, where we've seen complete financial collapse, uh, the emigration or the sort of the flight of millions of refugees uh, because of the economic situation in the country, um, the repression and the repressive tactics of the Maduro regime. Uh, obviously, there are reasons to 
to be quite cynical and despair for the situation there. I'm going to bring in one more caller, Kabina in Essex County, New Jersey. Kabina, thanks for calling WNYC. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so I would like to talk about the elections happening in Ghana this year, 2024. Each party that comes to power in Ghana, they try to change the, uh, the electoral commissioner, that is having bring your own referee to a football game. And the new commissioner, the electoral commissioner always try to move the goalpost a little bit in favor of, of the party because she was appointed by the, the party in power. She definitely has some affiliation with the party, and that is, that is so unfair. That is so unfair. So they are doing everything to make sure that the current administration, their nominee, will win in 2024 so that whatever corruption that they've, they've involved in, you'll be able to cover up for them because there's so much corruption that has, that has happened over the past eight years in Ghana. It's so bad. Kobina, thank you so much for your call and, and for giving us your headlines from the elections in Ghana. Ishan, you know, it, it's just so striking listening to callers um, who have such deeply personal connections to these elections and, and the feeling of wanting to make sure they get the attention. Um, I would also say, you know, for listeners who've been with us since the start of the show, some frightening echoes from some of the threats to democracy that we started the show talking about and what we're hearing in the context of some elections around the world. Um, any reaction to Kobina and some of the concerns he raised about the election in Ghana? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the the underlying current here and in all the, the callers' comments or most of the callers' comments and what we're seeing across the world is that the the kind of idealism and the the hopes and aspirations that we have wrapped up around the democratic process and what democracy what democracy means has kind of bled out in so many parts of the world and instead you see democracy democracies tangled up with a political class that feels entrenched immovable that operates with impunity that is corrupt that uh, doesn't deliver for its people. And in, in obviously in that context, uh, across, in various places, there is a hunger for something different, for a reset, for, for um, a purging of that political class. We saw that language in the Argentine election last year. Uh, we see that language in Trumpism, uh, which will be you know, something that will dominate our, our whole conversation in the, in the months to come here. Uh, and of course, as the caller just said, uh, dealing with corruption, dealing with a feckless political class is the lived reality of so many people in so many parts of the world. And um, how do you, how do you sort of, how do you champion liberal kind of ideal idealism in that context? Wow. Um, and to think that we, we only, we, there's several countries that we didn't even get to today. Sure, sure. Um, there's still elections that we could have talked about in South Africa in Taiwan, uh, but we're going to have to leave it there for now. So much um, that is going to be going running through my head from this conversation. My guest has been the Post's global affairs columnist, Ishan Tharoor, who writes their newsletter called Today's Worldview. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.